Good morning. Why don't we just pray? Heavenly Father, we just come to you right now, Jesus. We just offer all of our worship and praise to you. God, we bring that word before you, Lord. We ask that you come and reveal it to us, Lord. Come and open those things up, Father, so we can see the things that you're doing in this nation. Just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you come and you use me, Lord, just to, to bring your word this morning. Just pray that anything that's from me falls away, but the things you want to say here this morning, God, may they reign in our heart, begin to grow and blossom in our heart, Jesus. We love you and we honor you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen. I just wanted to say this before I start, that in worship, I heard this the other day and I thought it was phenomenal. In worship, when we bring ourselves to a place of declaring more for God, we're crying out, give us more, give us more. We're not doing that from a position of a a bratty child, not okay with the things that we have, but rather we're doing that from a position of a a, a baby not knowing how to get them more and crying because they want something more. So it actually shifts the position of us from being a a bratty toddler saying we're not happy with the things that you've given us, God, give us more, rather to a place of, God, we are so grateful for everything you've given us, but we want more because we need more of who you are. So it's a position of actually crying out to him and saying, not that we're not happy, we're happy with everything you've given us, but you are so good that we want so much more of you. It's a shift in the way that we see things. I just thought I'd, I'd share that with us this morning. All right, Acts. If you've got a Bible, go with me to Acts 5. We have learned a lot so far from Acts. We've learned the power of the Holy Spirit's moving through the people, the fallen on the people and given power and authority. The church of Jesus is growing rapidly. There's signs, wonders, miracles. The death and resurrection of Christ is being declared. The church of Jesus is starting to break into the legal systems, the temple courts, declaring that Jesus is king. This is one of the biggest moves of God giving power to the people and seeing him declare his goodness and holiness over a nation and over a people. Before I go on this morning, I want to challenge you to something. I spent a lot of time the last sort of five weeks deciding whether or not I was going to stop in Acts 5 and preach this sermon. I debated just skipping it. I debated just telling you I didn't want to preach it and moving forward. And I've read it over and over and over. I've read it in the context of Acts. I've read... I've read theologian from theologian's thoughts on this and I've decided that God has something for us in this and I'm going to preach it this morning. But before you come to me and tell me that this is wrong, I want to know that you've read the entirety of Acts since we've been going through this. Why? Because God reveals stuff to us all the time. There's ever-changing revelation that comes. So I don't want to hear, I read it five years ago and this is what I learnt. Because what I'm going to present this morning is not the truth, 100%, no questions asked it. Brad said just before, you know, we see in part, we prophesy in part. This is something that God's revealed to me in this, and I think it's imperative for our time and for the church today. But what tends to happen is when we shake an old mindset or a, a box that someone's head is in, they get a bit upset, and the first thing is, is you're just wrong. 
And I'm okay to be wrong. And I want to talk through this. I want to have conversations about this. I have had many conversations the last two weeks about this verse. But I want to know that you're hungry enough to see it a different way than the way you've seen it before. Is that okay? All I'm asking is that we reread Acts. Read it from start to end. Reread this verse. It takes about three minutes with slow word-by-word reading. Read through it. Is that okay? Is anyone upset? No? Sean? No? Beautiful. Yeah. I don't want to say okay yet. (laughs) No, no. Fair, fair, fair. Acts 5, 1 verse 11, Ananias and Sapphira. But a man named Ananias with his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property and with his wife's knowledge he kept back for himself some of the proceeds and bought only a part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, did you not remain your own? Did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? Why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? Contrived this deed in your heart. You have not lied to man, but to God. When Ananias heard these words, he fell down and he breathed his last. And great fear came upon all who heard it. The young men rose and wrapped him up and carried him out and buried him. After an interval of about three hours, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened, and Peter said to her, Tell me, whether you sold the land for so much? And she said, Yes, for so much. But Peter said to her, How is it that you have agreed together to test the Spirit of the Lord? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out. Immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. When the young man came in, they found her dead. They carried her out. They buried her beside her husband. And great fear came upon the whole church and upon all who heard of these things. Challenging verse. doesn't matter how you read it, where you read it, what denomination you sit in, who you, the way you've seen God. This verse is a challenging verse. What we know, these, these two couple, Ananias and Sapphira, we can assume we're a part of Peter's church because they were coming to bring proceeds to the church. They had sold some of their land like I'd spoke a few weeks ago. That the, the, the Christians in that time, once they were saved, would, would sell their property and they would bring all the money into a kitty before the apostles and the apostles would distribute that money to those who had need. It was a sign of being a part of the community being bought in. I think for me, I'm pretty happy to rule out the fact that these guys weren't Christians or Christ believers. They were in the community with Peter. So they've come in, they've sold some of their land, they've told everybody, yes, we're following the same rules that you guys are. We're selling all our property and we're bringing it before you. We're good Christians just like all the other guys that are in here. And they told a porky and they didn't quite bring as much as the land sold for. What we see then, a porky is a lie, just for those who are not Australian. Porky pie, a lie. (laughs) Sorry. They tell this lie. Peter comes in. Peter says to them, why have you done this? Obviously, you didn't. We can assume that maybe God told him that because he doesn't have any other information as to why they did that. He asks them. They drop dead. One drops dead, Ananias. His wife comes in. Peter questions her. Did you lie about the amount? No, we didn't. She drops dead. 
So from this, in, in the way that we look at this verse, you can go as far as the East is from the rest across the spectrum of conservative to non-conservative Christians, from, from liberals to extreme liberals, from Pentecostals to Baptists to Presbyterians, as far as you want to go. And most of these areas come up with four ideas as to what's happening here. And I spend a lot of time in each of these ideas praying, asking God. The first one is that God killed Ananias and Sapphira for lying, that it was because of their lies that God struck them down right there in the midst. The second one is that Ananias and Sapphira accepted and partnered with death and they chose to step outside of the kingdom in their lie and that they essentially killed themselves, right? They operated away from the kingdom and it was their own doing that had them drop dead. The third one is that Peter, through his authority as an apostle, spoke their death into being, right? He he called them into death because they had done the wrong thing that they should have done, they shouldn't have been lying, so he gives the authority for them to be taken out, which I find interesting because Peter was the pro at lying, considering that he lied to Jesus' face three times, didn't drop dead. I'll get to that later. The last one is where I've sat for most of my life, is that it's a mystery and we don't know enough, therefore we don't need to touch it. But the problem with that that I came across over these last few months while I've been walking through this verse is that it's right there in the Scriptures. It's right in the midst of one of the most incredible pouring out of the Spirit that we see, the most incredible building of the church that we see. It's right there smack bang in the middle. And you start to go, if this is the, if this is the platform for the local church in today's age, why is this there? Why not put it in Titus or somewhere else that no one's looking at as to how to build the church per se. Why, why put it right in the middle of one of the biggest moves of the Holy Spirit to bring the church back? There's got to be something more to this. So as I started wrestling with this and I was talking with different people and asking perspectives and listening to different sermons and I was chatting with Paul Tothill and he, he has you know tons and tons and tons of words around stuff and he was saying, and something sparked in me when he said something. It was something that he uses as a, as a barrister and something that I learned at uni was the difference between micro and macro. So when you're, when you're studying a subject, there's a thing called a, a, a micro take and a macro take. And the idea is macro being a big picture and micro being a small picture. So if you, if you look at something zoomed right zoomed in, it's a micro look, kind of like a micro wave is small waves cooking your pasta, right? Micro meaning small, macro meaning large. And what tends to happen when you're studying through something is that you have to take into account the macro before you begin to look at the micro in most cases, right? What's the big picture? So a lot of artists will say when they're painting that as they're painting small intricate details, they get lost in what the big picture is saying that it takes someone else to come in and look at what's there and say, this is what actually needs to be done to fix the painting. right? So it's the difference between a zoomed-in view and a zoomed-out view. And as Paul began to speak about what his take is on, on this verse and from a macro perspective, I started to realize the, the, the minutiae, the, 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 the macro tiny details doesn't really matter. What is it that this verse is saying to us as a church, as believers, that we can take away and it actually improves the way that we 
we see the, the, the scriptures, the gospel, the way we see God, the way we see what he's doing. And the first one for me is that if this verse is talking about not lying, then it's being told by the biggest hypocrite in the Bible. Right? Peter, before Jesus goes to the cross, Peter, Jesus says to him, you're going to deny me three times. No, I won't. There's no way I can do that. On the way to the cross, Peter, I don't know him. I don't know him. I don't know him. Three times he enters into lying to God in the presence of Jesus and he doesn't drop dead. So right away for me, I can rule that out and go, okay, if you lie tomorrow, no, the chances are you're probably not going to drop dead. However, I'm also not God and I don't know what that looks like. So if you did drop dead from lying, I become more puzzled and as puzzled as I already am. But I don't think this verse is a strong press for us to stop lying. That's too small. That's too micro in there to, to frighten us into a place where we shouldn't tell a lie. I don't think this is as small as, as don't lie. It's a part of it, which I'll get to in a minute. But I don't think that it is as small as that. I want to put it to you that Peter was not calling out Ananias and Sapphira because he was high and mighty, but rather he was calling out Ananias and Sapphira because he was protecting the move of God that was taking place in that city. That Peter realized, as an apostle, I have a duty to protect what God is doing and what I see coming in is a move of the enemy to undermine what it is God's doing. So whether it was a word of knowledge, whether God spoke from heaven and said, hey, Peter, these guys are lying to you, doesn't matter other than the fact that they were lying and Peter stands in the place as an apostle and he says, I will not allow this move of the enemy to come through into this place. I don't believe that Peter knew they were going to drop dead. I think he knew what his job was. He knew what he was called to do as an apostle in the faith, as a protector of the things God was doing. And he said, I will not allow this to come in and take what these people are operating in, what God's doing through these people. He knew what God was building in the community. He knew the glory that was starting to move through. He knew the power that was happening, people coming to Christ, the amazing things that were happening in the community. Peter could see, and then he's put in this position where the, a, a lie comes to his page. A lie comes before what he's doing into the place that he's seeing God move. The reason this is so important is because we have to accept that there is an enemy that's trying to pull apart what God's doing. I've been a part of churches where we should never talk about it because we don't want to give the enemy any credence and any, any well-dones. I've been a part of churches where they only ever talked about that and it was all about Let's look at what the enemy's doing. But I think there's a healthy balance where we have to understand that, yes, we are a people of God standing in victory, operating from the fullness of who he is. However, there is an, op an opposing force that wants to stop us from being in that place, that wants to operate against what's happening to remove the power and move of God. Everything Brad was talking about this morning, I believe that God is doing in this nation 
Church leaders all across this city that I meet with are all saying the same thing. We're starting to see things unlock that we haven't seen for a long time. Can I tell you, the enemy does not want that to happen. He does not want the power of God back in his church. Why? Because for so long we've been powerless. For so long we've not had the ability to break into the city, break into the nations, because we've not actually known who we are and the power in which we carry. We've created big, nice, large churches, but the rest of, of the people sitting in there, like Francis Chan says, have, have life jackets on and they don't actually know how to swim. They don't actually know the power that we carry as a people group that we are image bearers of God, we carry the authority that he has. That's what Jesus came to explain. That's who we are. What the enemy wants you to think is anything but that. So, of course, when the power of God starts to move through the church, the first thing he's going to do is send in a little messenger to pull the thing apart from the inside. And the way that Jesus does that, uh, sorry, the way that Satan does that is through the pride of man. Ezekiel 28.2, when when God is talking, God is talking to the Prince of Tyre, and I've preached this before, that the Prince of Tyre, when you read that, is actually Satan. He's talking about the guardian cherub that was in the garden at the beginning. He's talking about Satan. He says this, Because your heart is proud, and you have said, I am a God, I sit in the seat of the gods, in the heart of the seas, yet you are but a man and no God, though you make your heart like the heart of God. Prince of Tyre, because your heart is proud. Pride in the Oxford Dictionary says this, it's a feeling or deep pleasure or satisfaction derived from one, one's own achievements, the achievements of those with whom one is closely associated or from qualities or possessions that are widely admired. Pride is a heart of the condition that sets your mind on yourself rather than your mind on God. Over the last decade of the church, we have peddled and modeled this thing, me, 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 what can I get? What is it about me? This church isn't for me. I don't like the things. I said this the other week. It was all about me, me, me. And everything we read in Acts, everything I've shown you over the last six weeks has been everything about Jesus. It's all about him. It's all about him, God. It doesn't matter what it looks like. It doesn't matter what happens to me in this place. It's all about you. It's all about you. We sung that song this morning, May I Drink From Your Cup. And I was sitting there thinking, that's a scary sentiment. Because you know what happened when Jesus had to drink from a cup? God, if it's your will, take this thing from me. I don't want it. But I want to do what you ask me to do. Well, I'm asking you to drink the cup, son. But God, I don't want to drink it. Drink it. You see, we sing a song like that. Let me come to you. Let me drink from your cup. And then we see what's inside the cup. And we go, actually, I don't want it. Jesus knew what was in the cup. He knew what the plan was. He knew what the core was. And he drops to his knees in absolute agony, sweating blood, saying, God, I can't do this. Take this from me. And then we sit, drink from your cup in your hand. Oh, Lord, I love it. We speak to that person in, the, in Woolworths. No, I won't. Take it back. I don't want the cup. You see, what, what starts to happen is that we begin to look at ourselves. We get caught up in the pride of man. 
That's going to hurt me. That's going to make me look silly. That's going to ruin my nap time. That's going to ruin what I've planned to do today. Me, me, me. That's the operation, the primary level of the enemy. The primary weapon of Satan was to take your eyes off Jesus and put them onto yourself. Look at the garden. Genesis 3, 5. Satan says to Eve, For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. He has all these things hidden from you, Eve, that he hasn't told you about. All these things that could make your life so much better. He has all these goodies that he hasn't told you about. And you're missing out. You're not getting the things you're going to get. Eat from this tree, Eve. Eat from this tree and you'll have everything. You will be like he is. You will be so happy and so joyous. He was operating in pride to say, it's all about you, Eve. God's lying to you. He hasn't given you everything. And Eve, Eve, in I think her ignorance, in a split moment that she just lost her vision, she lost her eyes on Jesus. I have compassion for Eve. I, Flipper, I, I don't know whether I would have done any better in the garden. I have compassion for Eve. Eve fluffed it, but she only got one opportunity. But right then, Eve listens to the guardian cherub of one she thought she could trust. She enters into sin, and right there in the fullness of God, she destroys the paradise that was created to see the people of God walking with him for eternity. Satan manages to get pride into Eve's heart and to break down eternity. Satan wants to get in where God's moving. He wants to break in. He wants to break into your families. He wants to break into your children. He wants to break into this house. He wants why? Because then he can start to pull apart the power that God's starting to impart in your, in your marriage, in your parenting, in your children's lives, in this home. He wants to get in and destroy it from the inside out. That's what he did in the garden. That's the same thing he attends to do with Ananias and Sapphira. He brings them along. He puts pride in their heart. And Ananias says, no, no, I'm just as good as all of you. I've given all of the properties. I've sold everything quietly, keeping a little bit of pocket change for himself that he probably was going to buy some, some lollies or a six-pack of beer or something with it. He was, he was not going to get much from it, but he kept it. Why? Because I get to show them that I'm as good as they are and I get to keep a little bit for myself. Pride entered his heart and he attempts to break into the community right there and rip apart the power that God was moving. Thousands were coming to Christ. Thousands were starting to change and Satan says, no longer, Ananias, take some pride because you'll listen to me and go in and ruin what it is God's doing. Go in and break apart everything that God has spent so long building. Right in the midst, Adam and Eve and Ananias and Sapphira attempt to allow pride to ruin everything. We have this, we have this thing in our minds, and, and I've thought it too, that when the fullness of the Spirit comes, when we're standing in the presence of God, sin is eradicated and there is no more sin. That right there in the presence of, of, of God, 
We can be in a place where everyone's holy and everything's amazing. But you know, the Bible says that sin is crouching at the door. That the moment you open that door to exit that place, sin is right there. The axe of the flesh is right there. And it will kick you while you're down. You see, we have all kinds of places throughout the Bible. Eve, right in the garden, she's in the fullness of of the Spirit of God, the fullness of God, sin enters in. Moses, in the absolute phenomenal time, bringing them out, the fullness of God, communicating with God, boom, he drops the ball and he strikes the rock. Judas, Judas, face to face with Christ, sin creeps in. You see, we've created this no-go zone where we feel like everyone, because they're, they're sinning, look how many ministers throughout church history operate powerfully in the power of God and then you find out that their life has been riddled with sin. You find out that the acts of the flesh, they've been sleeping with someone that wasn't their wife or they've, they're bringing people into the marital bed or they're this or they're that or they're whatever it is, addicted to drugs. We see this all the time and then we go, how could that happen? They were the most holy men of God we saw. They were operating in signs and wonders like nobody else was because the gift of God doesn't negate our character, doesn't negate who we are as people. That for one blink of an eye, for one allowance of the enemy to come in and put a foothold in our heart, and all of a sudden we start allowing him to move where we don't want him. James 4, 6, 7 says this, But he gives more grace. Therefore it says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. This is a constant reminder of how we live our life as Christians. It's not once submit, resist the devil, good to go for the rest of my life. No, because the enemy will continually be crouching at the door, waiting and waiting and waiting and waiting until you give him the okay. And guess what? He uses you to rip apart the entirety of the church. We've seen, we've seen strong leaders, Christian leaders, get hooked on this desire to be bigger and to be better than they actually are. And we've seen them rip churches apart. The enemy will use anyone who's willing to listen. And the quickest way to listen is to have pride in your heart to want to be something that you're not, to want to be bigger and better, to want to have more. Me, 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 mine, mine, mine. Give it to me. Isaiah 2.11 The haunty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up, and it shall be brought low. Do you know why the Bible says those that are first will be last? Because it's God directly calling out the primary weapon of the enemy and saying you will never, ever be allowed to operate in my home. It's God saying that pride will never, ever, ever take place. Why? Because I've flipped the thing on its head and I've made the last first and the first last. 
This is not a ladder that you climb to get to the top. You don't get to work your way up in, in Christianity. You become this elite stripes on your, on your shoulder and, and have a special ticket where you get into a special door and a special room. That's not the way God works. And you know the most fascinating thing that I, I see is that you look at some of the, the most well-known cults in the world and guess what they have? Rank, order, get to the top. And you know what? You get to the top and you know what you get? Nothing. Why? Because God flipped it on its head for the very reason that pride will tear apart a building. But righteousness, that's why God chooses broken people, nobodies, because they were already nobodies. They got nothing to lose. He's breaking down pride from allowing a foothold in the church. I watched a documentary a little while back on Scientology and just out of pure curiosity, I think it was three hours, I was hooked the whole time. I thought it was fantastic. But they get to the end and they interview a guy who's no longer in it. And they get to the end because in Scientology you work your way up. You get different rank and then at the end you get the package, right, from L. Rod Hubbard. You get the package and it's, it's the most coveted thing. Everyone wants the package. So this guy's interviewing. He says, I got all the way to the end. He goes, I, I was, it was the best day of my life. I opened the package. And then you're like, as you're watching it, you're like leaning forward with anticipation because I didn't know what was in the package. They said, what was it? They said it was a letter from L. Rob Hubbard saying, well done. You made it. Here's the secrets. And it was a, a comic book, essentially, of different things that he saw, aliens and all kinds of different things. And the guy says, he says to the, the, the person who's there, is this it? Is this all I get? For years and years and years of work, is this all I get? You see, the interesting thing in that for me is not, is not the fact that he got a crappy gift. I could have told him that. But the thing is, is that he wanted something for himself. Pride was so big in his heart that he thought it was going to give him some sort of leg up into the next thing. Some sort of it's about me getting the next thing. And then he gets there, and what was in it? Squat. Or nothing for those non Australians. <laughs> we have to understand this. In Hebrew culture, to establish something, they needed two or more witnesses. Right? That's why the Bible says, Where two or more of you are gathered in my name, there I am in your midst. Why? Because two people establish an authority. Right? So when Jesus. I preached about this before. When Jesus comes to be baptized with John the Baptist and he's walking through and he wants that samika, that authority as a rabbi, he, he needs two witnesses. The first is John. This is the lamb, uh, the, the lamb of the Lord whose, whose sandals I'm unworthy to tie. It's the first one. And the second one he receives is the voice from God. This is my son in whom I'm well pleased. Two people who give the authority to Jesus as a rabbi, samika. In everything they did, they needed authority. That's why when you hear uh, uh, preachers, especially um, um, for lack of a better term, like faith preachers, they'll say, if, if you're praying for something, bring somebody else in with you. Bring your wife in or, or bring a friend in to agree with your prayer. Why? Because they're trying to pull on the, the idea that we, we get authority through two or more people. So Ananias comes in and he, and he creates this lie and he says, yep, I gave all, the, all of the money from the property. That's one person. The second person who comes in is who? His wife, Sapphira. Why? Because Satan was trying to, to lock in authority 
inside that church, because it works for the light, doesn't mean it doesn't work for the darkness. Right? Satan needs two people to give authority to a lie, authority to evil to operate inside a place. So what he does is he gets Ananias and Sapphira. Why? Authority to lock down what he was going to do to destroy the move of God inside Jerusalem. That's why people will say, if you're hurt and angry and upset, don't go home and whinge and whine and get your wife or spouse on board to agree with you in your awfulness because what you're doing is you're solidifying authority over whatever it is you're whinging and whining about. How's Sean? What a, what a loser Sean is. Then Jess goes, yeah, what a loser. Yeah, now in authority, we are agreeing in Sean's losery. Loserousness, rather. Sorry, that's the correct English. So now in our whinging and whining at home and our gripe about Sean, we are locking down and solidifying awful onto him. What does the enemy do? Begins to play and trade on what it is that Jess and I have locked in against Sean. We've allowed in that moment a foothold in our heart for the enemy to start to break in. Who, against Sean, most likely know between Jess and I. Because we've done what? We've established the authority for Satan to move in our marriage. So often this is what Jess and I will do. And I tell you what, it's difficult. Because when you sit down, you want to have a good gripe, and your wife says to you, stop. You're like, I want to gripe. And we do this often. We did it on Thursday night. I said, stop. We need to stop. Stop. We're letting the enemy in. We're allowing a foothold in our heart for him to come and destroy what we're building. You see, the enemy wants to solidify authority in your life because then he can rip everything apart on the inside. Everything. That's why when Sapphira walks in, she's in the same fate. Why? Because she gave authority to Satan with her husband. Right in that moment, she was trying to solidify an authority for evil to operate. I'm almost finished. I need five to seven more minutes. 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. If you've got a Bible, can you go there? 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4. The first time I ever heard this verse, I'm gonna pump, I'm gonna pump Brad's tires up like like you've never heard. But the first time I ever heard this verse, Brad was, can I hey can I tell this story? And then you'll agree, and if you disagree, well, <laughs> okay. Sorry, no, no, fair, fair. I'll tell the story, and I'll ask for forgiveness at the end. The first time I ever heard this story was um, at Crossing Point. I had not long been in Crossing Point. And there was, there was a person in the congregation causing absolute havoc. And Brad got up, and I didn't know any of this. I had not been there very long. Um, I, I didn't really know the person. For the, I'd met her a couple of times. I didn't know much of what was going on. But Brad got up, and he, and he preached on this verse. And, and it, it blew me away because what he was doing was he was asking that person to leave the community. He was stepping that person outside the community and saying, you cannot come here anymore because there's, you're, you're wreaking havoc among the people and you're causing issues. And he read this verse, 1 Corinthians 5, 4-7. to 
Paul speaking to the Corinthian church. He says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit, Paul's spirit, saying that he's praying from a distance, with the power of our Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Paul here is talking about a man who is having uh, sexual relations with what seems to be his stepmother. And he's saying to them through the letter to the Corinthians, remove them from your community. Obviously, we don't read the letter from the Corinthians to Paul, but obviously there would have been a section in that letter saying, hey, this is going on. It's causing heaps of trouble. What do we do with it? And the, the way Brad articulated this in that, in that sermon was that, that this lady, and, and the more I've prayed on it and gone through on it, is that, that the man that Paul's talking about is saved, his spirit man locked away in Christ, but his flesh of which he refuses to renew is causing havoc inside the community. And he says, send him out so that he doesn't hurt anybody else and let him either be his, his flesh be destroyed, he be killed and his spirit man go on, or he be renewed and brought back in. So the picture was that there was a there was havoc being uh, uh, placed inside the community where Satan was having a field day and attempting to pull apart everything that was inside that community. And Paul's saying, remove them from the community because it's their flesh that's wreaking havoc on the people and stopping those from seeing who Christ is. So it's actually better that they go out there and be destroyed because their spirit man is saved, then they stay here and continue to rip those apart who are trying to understand more and more of who Christ is. That's what Paul's saying in this verse. He's saying it's better that they go out there so that that doesn't wreck what God's doing in the people. This is exactly what happened to Ananias and Sapphira. It's exactly the same picture. Right? They come in, they've been saved, they've understood the fullness of Christ, their spirit man has been saved, they're operating the fullness of God, yet their flesh, of which Paul says needs to be continually renewed daily, is wreaking havoc and allowing a voice into the community for Satan, so rather remove them so that their spirit man remains saved and they don't continue to ruin what's taking place through the power of God here. Does that make sense? God will protect the move of his glory and it will only come through clean hands and a pure heart. The glory of God is moving through the people who are willing to constantly renew their mind and operate in who he is. We are people called to renew our minds, purify our hearts and clean our hands. Why? Because God wants a righteous people. So Ben, if I sin, are you going to remove me from the community? No. No. But if you are causing havoc in this home and you refuse to repent and I have to make a decision to protect the 99 and forsake the one, yes, I will make that decision. As Peter did. Why? Because Peter was given the opportunity as an apostle and as a guardian on the gate to protect the move of God and the people that God had brought in. You see, we in our, in our Western Christian thinking 
we create this thing where, no, I have the right to come in and do as I please. No. That's not how this works. This thing that God is building is serious. This thing that God is building is incredibly important. This thing that God is revealing, the glory of him, this is the glory of the uncreated God. This is the glory of the Alpha and the Omega. This is the very presence of of the Lord of hosts. We have to hold that with a level of reverence. We have to hold that with the idea that, that the high priests once a year would get to sit in the place we sit in daily. And they would go through a, a rigmarole of things in order to get into the Holy of Holies for just a glimpse. And they held it with such reverence. They held it with such awe. Jesus, I get to come in and be with you for a moment. It's a reverential understanding that Christ, the creator of all things, I get to be with for just a moment. We get that every day. A reverential awe, Jesus, I do these things because I just want to be with you. Whatever I, whatever I have to do to be with you more, I'll do it. Because you are worth every single moment. You see, we, a lot of us, I'm not speaking about just this house, I'm speaking about the church in general, is crying out for the glory of God to be outpoured. Do we want that glory? Do we want the glory that God will protect with everything? Do we want the glory where people who are carrying sin and deceit in their heart will, will get to the door and go, I don't know if I can go in because I, I know I have to let go of this and I don't know if I want to. Do we want that glory? Do we want the glory of God that drops us to our face where we cannot move and we say, God, you are so powerful, I will lay here for the rest of my days. Do we want that glory? Do we really want to drink from the cup? You see, when you start to understand and break the scriptures down, this is a difficult, scary thing to be a part of, but I don't want to be anywhere else. Like the disciples where Jesus says, drink my, drink my flesh, eat my flesh and drink my blood. And then he says, they all start to walk away and he says to the disciples, are you going to go too? They don't understand that because they say, where else are we going to go? They don't say, no, Lord, we got your sermon, awesome sermon, understand it, love it. They say, we have nowhere else to go. This makes no sense. It's completely insane. We don't understand it. Eat your flesh, drink your blood. What does that even mean? But we'll come. Because we, have, we don't know where else to go. We don't know what else it is. Titus 1, 15, verse 16. To the pure, all things are pure. But to the defiled and unbelieving, nothing is pure. But both their minds and their consciousness are defiled. They profess to know God, but they deny him their works. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for any good work. Dan Kalender said this, I heard God say to me, I will never send anyone, anyone away empty unless they come full of themselves. I'll never send anyone away empty unless they come full of themselves. We have to be a people. We have to be a people who stop pride from operating in our hearts. 
We have to be a people who will not let pride operate in our life. Why? Because Satan's going to take a foothold in that and you're going to, he's going to wreak havoc in your life. Do we have victory over that? Yes. Do we have the authority to call that out and remove it from our life? Yes. Through Jesus Christ and what he gave us on the cross, we do. But we get the choice to decide who we side with and when we side with them. We get the choice to decide whether we want the authority of Christ or the authority of Satan to rule and reign in our life. We get to decide that. So at every moment when we, when we operate in our lives, we say, God, come and have your way. I've preached this before, but that's why in the Lord's Prayer it says, Lord, let your will be done. Why? Because we have to lay our will down to get it out of the way to see his will come. God, I don't want my will to rule and reign because it's not going to do what yours will do. You see, Satan doesn't want us looking at God because he knows we'll fulfill everything God's asked us to do. He wants us looking at ourselves because we can't do it in our own strength. When we set our eyes on him constantly, when we set our eyes on who he is, God will operate and will do the things he's written on our scroll and asked us to do. I want to go back into worship, not because that's what we're doing now and it's the thing that, that we like to do at the end because it means that I don't have to close it out. That's not why we're doing this. I want to go back into worship because everything that I've just said, we need an opportunity to stand before God in that quiet place with him while the music plays or we sing and declare him and we go, God, I, I want a piece of this. Where we can stand in that place of worship. On Thursday night, we had prayer here. And can I tell you, it was the most unusually phenomenal time I think we've ever had in prayer. For the first 30 minutes, we all prayed and, and, and were praying over the city and praying over things. And then it just went quiet and no one prayed for about half an hour. The time went like that and I couldn't believe it. And I, I opened my eyes and I thought, but we all saw certain things and, and God definitely moved and revealed stuff to us. There was this reverence of God where none of us wanted to move. And it wasn't weird or unusual. It sounds weird or unusual now that I'm saying it out loud. But in the moment, it wasn't. I was just standing here with my eyes closed and not saying anything. I wasn't thinking anything. And there was this amazing peace, eh, Marky? Like this powerful, thick presence of the Lord that I can't explain other than being here and I'm not trying to rope you to come to the prayer meeting, come if you want to come. But we just stood here and there was this moment where it was almost like it was being said, God, do what you want to do. You're in charge. We're not going to do anything more. We're not going to say anything more. So as we go back into worship, as we just take a moment to stand before God and worship, let's just position ourselves Galatians 6, 7 verse 8 says this, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. We get to decide where we sow. This is not just talking about finances. As a people, we get to decide... Do we want this? Do we want your glory, God? Really, do we want it? Do we want to be a people who are longing for you, who's longing to see what you have for us? Are we willing to create an environment where sin won't stand? 
Are we willing to create an environment when people come through that door, they're so convicted by the power of God that they just want to give themselves over to Him? Are we ready for a spirit and the power of God to move in this place that we come and and we lay ourselves down before Him and we don't move because the power is so heavy that God, I don't understand it and I can't explain it to my friends, but when I come before you, your spirit moves and I feel your presence inside me. Are we willing to have that? Are we willing to lay ourselves down in such a way where we say, God, it's not about me. I don't want pride to rule my life. I'm laying myself down and I want to pick up the cross you've given me. I want to drink from the cup regardless of what you've put in it. Whatever it is, whatever you've written on my scroll, Lord, I'll do it. Why? Because I want to know you more. I want to see you more. So why don't we stand and let's just position ourselves.